What's going on, my people? How y'all doing out there? Man, it feels so good to be back with you guys today. This is TJ with another episode of The Soapbox. And I'm telling you, I feel real energized to be here talking to you guys this afternoon. First off, I want to say thank you so much for those of you that are tuning in. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, whatever time it is that you're tuning in to the podcast. So look, we're going to jump on into this thing, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. All right, so we are actually nearing the end of this series on the clan. And I have to tell you guys that it is extremely refreshing for me to have been able to sit here and talk to you guys and kind of let you in on the background of what me and so many others have been through and probably some of the stuff that people are going through right now that are right around you and they just don't know how to express it, don't know how to talk to you about it, that don't know what to say or who to say things to. This episode is going to highlight some of the things that we went through just as a whole. You know, we just got through talking about relationships and the relationship aspect of the clan was a big deal. But when we talk about the sacrifices that people made inside the clan and in their lives that they had going on outside of the clan, we have to take into consideration that there are many things that many people that were a part of the clan gave up in order to be a part of this organization some of us gave some real sacrifices in order to be a part of something that we thought was bigger than just living and so you kind of have to see it from that perspective is that we were young children we were young kids but everybody that joined at the time that that i was a part of this group was not a child so many times people gave up a lot of what they had become accustomed to in life in order to be a part of this group Now, I kind of have to break down the sacrifices that people went through in three categories. So, of course, we've got mental sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, and physical sacrifices. And throughout this process, everyone that was a part of this group sacrificed in all three areas. I told you guys last week about the situation where I originally moved to Baltimore to live with Sifu's mother. And to refresh your memory, I told you that, you know, those living conditions were absolutely horrendous um there was no electricity the water was always cold unless we were able to boil it somewhere usually there wasn't much water access at all the house was horrible never clean they had all types of insect rats and things of that nature that lived in the house alongside of me it was so dusty in the home that you could actually taste the dust in the air and there were a lot of things that i dealt with there my shoes possibly getting stolen i told a lot of you guys last week that I used to sleep with my shoes on so that they wouldn't be stolen by one of the guys that lived at the household. Also, there was, you know, a very heavy drug element inside of the home. And I had to contend with the possibility of some type of raid happening or things going on inside of the home due to these people utilizing drugs every single day. So there there was a lot to deal with there. But that was just one sacrifice of many. So I'm going to try 
to break this down so that we can kind of get through this and you can understand. So the first sacrifice that I want to talk about is the blind dedication that Sifu wanted everybody to have in the group. One thing that you had to understand if you had become a member of the clan is that nothing came before the clan. There was no affiliation you had that was more important than the clan. No group you were a part of, no job you worked. There was nothing that would come before the clan. And that meant even your own family. So you have to understand that dynamic. Some of us came into the clan with really deep family ties. Um, I, of course, lived with my mom and I was very much close to the people that were directly in uh, my family that surrounded themselves around my mom and my mom surrounded themselves around them. But my brother T, his family was very, very closely oriented. They were really, really tight. And there were never days when I was ever around him and we didn't run into some of his aunts and some of his cousins and, and, and just all types of different different people in his family. And I truly believe that one of the biggest challenges to T was being able to juggle the understanding of having to deal with the clan while the clan was explaining to him and telling him that these people that he had developed these deep ties with were supposed to be second best. The clan came first. So the clan's needs came first. Sifu's demands came first. The structure of the group came first. Even each individual inside of the clan was supposed to trump any type of affiliation that you had with your direct family or with anybody that you had developed family ties with. This became very apparent as we grew inside of the clan because initially there wasn't much emphasis placed on us being so dedicated to the group. That grew in time and it became stronger and stronger until eventually the entire us versus them dynamic was in full operation. Now, like I told you guys a couple episodes back, this also caused problems with people's marriages and with relationships. I can't count how many situations where people were in relationships and due to their involvement in the clan, those relationships were destroyed. So many different groups of people that had come inside of the clan and were in marriages or in close relationships with a significant other. And due to the fact that the clan had to come first, things didn't work out. The next sacrifice that I definitely want to stress to you is that there was a clear understanding that Sifu's word was law and it was beyond question whatsoever. Like you were not able to acknowledge any error in Sifu's thinking, in his speaking, in his action. It was supposed to be approached as if whatever he said or whatever he did was absolutely correct and any questioning of that would show clear treason and disrespect to him as your superior or your master. And anytime that Sifu was in error, you were supposed to continue on as if you are in complete agreement with him and he would eventually figure out what his error was. Now, that was a difficult thing for many members that came into the clan. But as people continued, everyone learned how to operate inside of that arena. And so it became a natural part of our operation. But it didn't end there because as you grew inside of the clan and your understanding of Sifu's position, then you also were required to grow in how you approached Sifu. So now, as we continued on to grow, our entire relationship with Sifu changed. Because initially, we were all 
seen as Sifu's students. So, of course, we were learning and we were training from him. And there were traditions that were passed down through all of the martial system about bowing and showing respect to the dojo master and so forth and so on that they continued on with us inside of this process. But those different traditions continued to morph and grow and change into something more perverted than what they were. Now, anybody that's listening to this podcast will say to themselves, well, I don't know if I would do those things or I don't know if I would act that way. But I want you to pay close attention to how you operate on a regular basis with people that are in a superior position than you are. Many times you find yourself showing a high level of respect to those that are in a higher and more superior position than you are. For instance, soldiers get saluted. They salute higher ranking officers and so forth and so on. In other arenas, many times the individuals who have a higher position are treated with much more respect and much more reverent than someone who is not of the same rank. So in the martial systems, this has always been a tradition. We have always spent time bowing to our instructors and to each other as we entered dojos and as we conducted different things such as sparring matches and things of that sort. But Sifu's setup moved to an entirely different process. Before I escaped, we had to bow and kneel to Sifu anytime he entered a room that we were in and anytime that we entered a room that he was in. We also had to ask or wait for permission to move from our lowered state before we could address him. We also had to ask permission to speak, especially in situations where we were directly addressing Sifu himself. If Sifu was present, we had to ask permission to do certain things such as use the bathroom, get something to eat. We even had to ask permission to go to sleep. We were not allowed to do such things without permission given to us by Sifu. This is a extreme level, any type of respect given to any person. And no one should have that type of control over your life. But Sifu had gotten to a point where he was able to literally manipulate every single aspect of what we did and how we did it. We could not leave the house without his permission. And even when we left, we were required to leave a complete detailed note stating what we were going to be doing when we left and how long we would be gone. When we left to do anything, whether it was work, whether it was going out to run errands, we had to call in and do what was called a two-hour check-in. Every two hours, we had to check in at home to make sure that everybody understood what we were doing and where we were and how we were. It was absolutely stressful every minute because every single time we were counting the time, counting the hours, ensuring that we were not in violation of the two-hour rule. As we were going places, we were not allowed to deviate from which direction or what location we said we were going. So in order to make any deviation, we had to call and ask for permission to do so. This added continued stress to everyone that was a part of the clan. And while everyone operated the same way, I know for a fact that no one wanted to be calling in and talking to people the way that we did. Now, on a more physical level, the physical training that we went through and endured was harsh. And it was harsh on a lot of levels. One was the frequency 
because some of us, not everyone, but some of us trained every day. Sifu had created this ideal in your mind that we were striving for some type of elevated physical existence. So every day, those of us that were truly deeply rooted into this ideal would get out and attempt to better ourselves all the time. So people like myself, people like my brother T, people like Robert, people like K, individuals that were really, really deeply rooted into this process. We trained all the time, sometimes countless hours. I remember getting up at three and four in the morning when we originally moved to the Dundalk area and we actually had our own backyard. And I remember getting up and training and training and working out and training. And then I go in the house and take a shower and get prepared for work. And that was a daily routine. I remember coming home some night from work and actually training for hours in the backyard at night. Sometimes in the rain, of course, this is Maryland. So sometimes in the snow and just continuously putting forth as much effort as I could to push myself to a limit and then beyond. I remember me and my brother T sparring with each other for hours, continuously rattling off constant assault on each other's body. I remember me and Kay sparring and giving each other serious injury just for us to get patted on the back and told to continue training. Some of the training was really, really harsh. And what was amazing to all of us was that we rarely, if ever, saw Sifu train. But of course, in his mind and in his explanation, he spent more time in the Hidden Masters realm. He trained all the time there. So he was able to keep his skills up and beyond and continue to advance on a regular basis. This, of course, was not the case for us. So we had to continue to push forward. But sometimes this pushing caused us some serious, serious injury. This leads me to an incident that happened to my brother T while he was living in an area right outside of Sherraw, uh, South Carolina, called Society Hill. I was not present for the event itself, but I was given the details about it, of course, numerous times because of the nature of what was said about the event. But apparently, T, Sifu, and another member of the clan at the time were inside of T's house, and Sifu had a sword. And Sifu's sword, of course, was extremely sharp. So much so that Sifu decided that he was going to demonstrate how sharp it was by cutting through something that T was holding. When Sifu sliced this object, he missed and out of control cut directly into T's forearm, severing some of the vein in his arm. T, of course, had to have medical attention in order for this injury to be fixed. And initially, Sifu had all kinds of sorrow and remorse for what he had done until he came up with this story that one of the hidden masters had come down at the moment that Sifu had sliced into this paper and caused the blade to change in order to test T's faith and belief in Sifu. So Sifu turned a mistake that could have caused T his arm into some type of harrowing event that catapulted T into a position where he was considered a faithful student. This is how Sifu operated. But this is how many people in these positions operate. An error is made and they decide in order to take blame away from themselves, there is a way to rationalize why these things happen. This is 
is not something we need to be falling victim to. And I'm telling you this from a position of somebody who has already experienced it. Now, another situation where training became physically harmful. At T's house, we were training in the living room. And I was learning how to do what is called a 720 spinning hook kick. This, of course, Sifu was supposed to be training me on how to apply this technique. But he wasn't doing the technique. He was talking me through it. So I attempted the technique, as he said, and I couldn't do it. And he made me continue over and over and over and over again. And on one of the attempts, I hit the ground and I tweaked my knee. I got back up and I continued. And we continued this process until eventually I had a better understanding of how to do the technique. But I felt really, really weird about the way my knee felt at the time. I woke up the next morning and I went to work. And when I went to work, there was this really sharp pain in my knee. I complained about it and complained about it until eventually I felt like I couldn't do the job that I was supposed to be doing and I needed to go and get it checked out. So when I did, the doctors at the hospital said, well, we're going to have to send you to a specialist because it appears that you have damaged the cartilage in your knee and some of the ligaments that are holding your knee together. So I went to this specialist and the specialist said, we're going to have to do surgery because right now what has happened is, is that you have torn the cartilage in your knee and it is cutting into the ligaments in your leg. The doctor also said that you are absolutely lucky that you are able to walk because of the damage that you have done to these locations. When this was brought to Sifu's attention, his main focus was my need to meditate more because my leg should have been strong and how much time I was going to lose from training because of this surgery and me being down. So now the, the next two sacrifices actually go hand in hand because there was also a requirement for money management and identity theft inside of this because when we originally started training there were no financial elements to this situation it was just training there also was no need for us to give our personal information to Sifu in any way one of the things that changed all of that was the introduction of A because once A came and Sifu was able to see the traits and the attributes that A brought to the group Sifu began to take advantage of those because A was very smart and he was very good with numbers and money and finances and Sifu picked up on that and utilized A to initiate things that he probably wanted to do the entire time but didn't know how to approach him so before I left whenever you became a member of the clan we got all of your information everything your social security number your date of birth anything that was sensitive we had copies of and we knew your driver's license number your bank account numbers any cards that you had debit credit whatever the case may be cell phone numbers because everything was funneled through the clan so all of your personal actions were taken care of through the clan by eight so if you had a phone bill the clan paid it if you had a car note you would only have it because it belonged to the clan it was the clan's car not your car i'll never forget the day that we began to start to take up dues and it originally started out with just giving about 20 bucks to the clan in order to go 
towards paying for things that the clan needed. By the time I left, the clan controlled your entire paycheck and everyone that was inside of the clan was given an allowance. This allowance was given to you as a standard and depending upon what your rank was in the clan depended on how much more you could get than the standard allowance. I made more money while working for the call center in Baltimore, Maryland doing non-emergency dispatch and city services call than I had made in my entire life working anywhere. It was nothing for me to bring home anywhere from $1,000 to $1,200 a week. Out of that money, each month, I was issued $120 to spend. The rest of that money went to the clan, and it was to be used for efforts that were clan efforts, such as paying for land, paying for a home, paying for car, paying for days when we went out, paying for seafood trips, or paying for the stuff he did that he needed for modeling or for acting. Financially, we were raped, and we had no control over anything because the clan controlled all of our personal information. Our cell phones and cell phone bills were monitored by A and the clan with seafood. And see, it was all the same effort because the original plan was to move to Baltimore and then push to move to California and then ultimately out of the country to Japan. That was where Sifu always said that Naikonami's headquarters was. This big organization that he called the Mega Hub was in Japan. Now, mind you, Sifu would always talk about how much Japanese he could speak. But toward the end, that was proven to be false as well. Because all of these Japanese words and sayings that Sifu was coming up with were just fictitious lies because I started learning Japanese for myself. While Sifu wanted to explain that there were ancient versions of Japanese, I began learning true Japanese and realized that Sifu didn't know Japanese at all. Not one bit. Which ended up being just another lie that he put out for us to believe. But by that time, some of us, me, my brother T, had begun putting two and two together. And though it was late, it was better late than never. So there was no way possible that we were going to fall victim to moving to California. But we did take a trip. We did utilize the funds that, of course, we were all contributing to, to take a trip from Maryland to California, where we spent a few days and Sifu was introduced to a guy who had ties with some of the action movies that were done during that time frame. Of course, this was a meet and greet. It was nothing more than that. It didn't go beyond that. And I truthfully believe that this guy decided to take these actions simply because A, spent so much time trolling him and getting in touch with him over and over and over and time again to the point where we were actually able to meet this guy and deal with him. But one of the biggest events that happened that demonstrates a large part of the sacrifices that we made. My mom was very worried about me and about things that were going on, things that she had heard, and she wanted to make sure that I was okay. So in one of the very few incidences where we actually talked to each other, she wanted to take a trip and come see me. Now this posed a lot of problems because of course she couldn't come stay at our house because then she would have realized what was really going on with the clan. At the time, I was with CB, but she couldn't come and stay at CB's house because me and CB 
weren't at that point in our relationship. So I ended up bringing her up and she stayed at a hotel. Now, of course, I had to ask permission for her to come up because if it was not going to be allowed, then I was going to have to come up with some type of reason for her not to come. But anyway, she came up. She had to pay for her room and all of the gas and everything to come up. And of course, me and my brother T, we put on a really good show for her. At no point in time did she get to see Sifu. But what we did was we spent time with her, taking her around, showing her the site, showing her different locations, taking her to D.C., showing her different parts of D.C. and neighborhoods and uh, the Capitol and monuments and all types of different things. And to my mom, this was a great trip. I showed her where I worked. I was able to actually give her a tour and walk her inside of uh, police headquarters in Baltimore City. She truly felt like her son was accomplishing everything that she had hoped and dreamed that he would. And every single moment of that trip, all I wanted to do was tell her the truth. All I wanted to do was jump in the car with her and my uncle and go back to South Carolina. But I didn't. Out of fear, out of shame, out of all of the different emotions that causes an individual to tell you a lie to save themselves. And every minute, we had to check in, make sure things were okay. It hurt to send them back home. And this is going to sound crazy, but it hurt to send them back home happy. It hurt to send them back home with a false sense of security for me and my well-being. Because as they left, as they drove off to head back, I could see it in their eyes and the way that they talked. They were so proud of me. They were so proud of my brother T. They truly felt like we had accomplished so much and we were in such a better place and better position than we were when we were down south. And that's sad because that was a lie. And in truth, in less than six to eight months from that moment, my mother would find out the truth. And and that's what I want people to understand the most about this situation. What hurts more or what has hurt more than anything else inside of this situation is the levels and the layer of deception and disgust and disgrace that many of us have been forced to live with and deal with throughout our climb up out of the shame of being a part of this situation. You see, I could take having knee surgery for something that I truly believe in. I could take having to turn away from my family and my friends for something I truly believe in. I could even take having to give up on everyone that I love for something I truly believe in. But what makes it hard, what makes it worse, what makes it the most painful thing in the world is when you find out that you've made all these sacrifices for something that's a lie. When you've turned your back on the people that have helped you your whole life, when you've turned your back on the people that have looked out for you when you couldn't look out for yourself, when you've turned your back on people that bled with you, that sweat with you, that shed tears for you, when you've turned away from these individuals and then all of a sudden in the blink of an eye you realize this is false this is fake this is phony and i've lived in this mess for years that hurts so when i got back to south carolina the pain didn't stop the hurt didn't stop the sacrifices continued because now i had to rebuild there were many nights that i sat in my mother's living room and convinced myself not to take my own life my mother had a little 22 pink 22 she kept it in a purse. I knew exactly where it was. There were many 
many nights, many nights when I felt like going and getting it and just ending it all. There were many nights when I felt like running away from everything because I played every scene over and over in my head. In year one of being back, there was no days that I didn't look over my shoulders to see if I was being hunted or somebody was coming to assault me. There were many days that I sat in the house and didn't leave, didn't walk out the door, looking out the windows, paranoid. There were many days when I sat there and every single event that had happened for the previous 10 years played over and over and over in my head. And I wrestled with the idea of maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just didn't see things the way that they should have been seen. Maybe I needed to go back. I wrestled with that. My mind and my spirit were in pure turmoil year one. But I got help though. And I reached out to different people. And that's what somebody out there that's going through this has to do. That's what individuals who are experiencing this type of suffering have to do. You have to reach out. You have to get help. You cannot do this alone. I couldn't. So when it comes to sacrifice, there were many. There's more than I can just talk about in one podcast. Understand every single member of this organization that went through what I went through gave of themselves, gave of everyone around them, and a piece of them was law in the process. All right, that's all I got for you guys this week. Um, of course, I mean, there's no need of me saying it, but of course, I ran long. Next week, I'm gonna say my final thoughts, and I am also in the process of trying to get a panel together to do a round table with those individuals who actually lived through this the way I did. But next week will be my final thoughts, and then we're gonna move on to the next series. But I love you guys, stay strong, keep your heads up. We'll fight through it all. Peace.